If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading Acts 2, verses 1 through 21 in the ESV. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Emilites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, thank you, Steve, <laughs> and Pamphyla, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here, and it is a, a great privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, before we dive in, though, would you, would you pray with me real quick? Father, we come before you this morning, and we confess that, that when you speak, things happen. Life comes forth. Lives are transformed. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, and that we would be receptive to what you have to say. Father, I ask that, that you would speak through me, that you would use me, that you would take uh, these, these words, these, these meditations, Father, that you would take them and infuse them with your power, uh, so that you and you alone uh, might be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in the 1960s, the legendary comic book creator Stan Lee was looking for a new excuse to explain why all of his characters seem to have superhuman powers. He had already used the obvious reasons, like cosmic rays, nuclear radiation, and a variety of radioactive animal bites. So he needed something new, 
He needed something fresh, uh, which is why he and fellow comic writer Jack Kirby created the mutants, which were humans gifted with extraordinary powers because they possessed the X gene. Now, the X gene, according to the Journal of Greek, not Greek, sorry, Geek Studies, that is a real publication, by the way. Uh, according to them, the X gene is like any gene. It's, it's coded into a person at conception. How are the superhuman abilities given by the X gene lie dormant until something happens in the mutant's life to activate their powers? And part of what the heroes of this run of comics, Professor X and his X-Men, part of what they do is seek to help mutants tap into and harness the extraordinary powers they possess. And I wonder if sometimes we as Christians feel like mutants whose X gene is still dormant. See, the Bible tells us that as followers of Christ, we have been gifted with great power. John 14 tells us that when Jesus returns to the Father, he will send his spirit to empower us to do greater things than he did. We are blessed with extraordinary power. And yet, empowered is not how most of us would probably describe our Christian lives. Uh, Billy Graham has stated that at least 90% of American Christians live defeated lives. Well, sure, we might read our Bibles and pray and attend church, but an honest evaluation of our lives would reveal that we fall short of the empowered witness that Jesus calls us to be. We are struggling with the same sin that we have been for years. We are unable to speak the name of Jesus among our friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Apparently, we've got the power. We just seem unable to tap into it. Which is why this morning, as we continue looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, we turn our attention to an important question. How can we live Holy Spirit-empowered lives? How do we experience the power that Jesus says is available to us to live successful Christian lives? And, and to discover this, we turn our attention to Acts chapter 2, which records the Holy Spirit showing up in a new and dramatic way in the people of God. And as we journey together toward our destination, discovering how we too can experience the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, we're going to pass three way markers. We're going to look at the prescription of Acts 2, the problem we have with that prescription, and God's provision. Okay. Now, right off the bat, we have to understand that the book of Acts is far more complex than it looks. On the surface, it, it seems like it's just a record of early church history. But Luke, the writer, is not just recording how Christianity grew and expanded. Uh, he also intends to instruct his audience on how to embody the Christianity he's writing about. And what that means for us, the audience, is, is that we have to wrestle with what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. What in these accounts are, are timeless principles that apply to all believers at all places and times? And, and what was particular to that specific event in history? And nowhere will you feel that interpretive intention more, than, more in Acts than in Acts chapter 2. And so, so let's approach it like this. Uh, let's note what's descriptive. 
what is clearly the historical accounting of the event. And from there, we'll, we'll parse out what Luke is prescribing for his audience to do. So Luke tells us that this account takes place on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a, a Jewish agricultural festival that takes place 50 days after Passover. It's when the farmers would bring the first sheaves of wheat from the crop and offer it to God. And we're told that on this day, a group of individuals, followers of a dead carpenter from Galilee, who some were saying had been raised from the dead, this group is gathered together. And Luke tells us that the group hears something like rushing wind, sees something like flames hovering above their heads, and they begin to speak in languages that they do not know. And unsurprisingly, this caused quite the commotion in Jerusalem because travelers from around the Roman Empire were, were in town for the festival. And they all wanted to know why some backcountry fishermen were speaking their language. And so Peter, one of the leaders, stands up and he explains what's going on. That hundreds of years ago, through the prophet Joel, Yahweh had promised that he would one day pour out his spirit on his people and that they were witnessing the fulfillment of that promise today. Now, let's not misunderstand what, what, what Peter is saying here. Peter is not saying that there is a new player in redemptive history. As Pastor Austin explained last week, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, ha has always been active from creation of the world on. But to receive power from the Holy Spirit... Was, was a rare thing in the Old Testament. It was typically reserved for prophets and for kings. But what we have here in Acts 2 is a transition from the selective outpouring of the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant and the unrestricted outpouring on the people of God under the New Covenant. That's what Luke is describing here. He's describing the outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh. But what does he intend for his audience to do with what he's describing? What's, what's the transferable principle from this event? And we see that in verse 4, where the Holy Spirit fills the believers for ministry. See, Luke's desire is that his audience would be filled with, with the Spirit in the same way that the Christians in Acts chapter 2 were. Now, that might seem straightforward enough, but because of that, that descriptive, prescriptive line gets kind of blurry, uh, there's an interpretive misstep that we can take that we, we need to be careful of. And that misstep is concluding that, that receiving the Holy Spirit is a, a secondary step in the salvation process. And, and here's how someone might get there as they read through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, you have people who, who are clearly saved, clearly followers of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 2, you have those same people receiving power from the Holy Spirit. And so that, that causes some to wrongly conclude that there's like a, a second blessing or a, a second tier of Christianity, that there are Christians, and then there are Christians who have received the Holy Spirit. And, and the way you figure out which group you are in is if you have spoken in tongues as they did the Pentecost. Now, here's why that's a misstep. Because divorcing the Holy Spirit from conversion is inconsistent with how Scripture speaks about receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I mean real quick. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
verses 12 through 13. Paul, Paul is talking about how all believers are members of the body of Christ, that all of us, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, or free, all were baptized, all share in one spirit. In other words, receiving the Holy Spirit is the universal experience of the Christ follower. And Paul actually gets more explicit in Romans chapter 8, where he says in verse 9 that we can fight back against the flesh because the Spirit of God dwells within us. In fact, he says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, referring to the Holy Spirit, is not in Christ. Let me give you one more. In Ephesians chapter 1, which is where Paul lays out the, the many blessings that we have in Jesus, he says in verse 13 that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in that moment you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what this, the context of Scripture is telling us is that Luke cannot be saying that we should seek to receive the Holy Spirit because we already have him. So, so being filled with the Spirit must mean something different than receiving the Spirit. So, so how is it different? And I think Jesus' departing words to his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, shed light on that difference. Uh, the last thing that Jesus says to his followers is that they will receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we see in verse 4 is the Holy Spirit empowering the followers of Jesus to do just that. And this is why they speak in tongues. Now, I'm going to let Pastor Austin have the decisive word on tongues in a couple weeks. You're welcome. Uh, but, but let me just say this. Um, in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues was not an expectation. It, 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 was, it was not proof of salvation. Speaking in tongues was a particular way in this situation that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' followers to bear witness to him. And, and so all that we've been trying to say thus far can be summarized like this. Luke's desire is that his hear, is for those who hear his message is to be filled with the Spirit as the believers at Pentecost were. He wants his audience to be empowered to bear witness to Jesus. And so let's make that a little more personal. The principle from this account is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we actually have a problem with that. And that becomes obvious when we understand what being filled with the Holy Spirit means. But first, let's articulate what we think it means. Have you ever been at a restaurant with a rather active waiter? You know what I mean? Like, you can't even finish your glass before they come by and refill it for you. Typically, they come by, oh, may I, may I fill up your water? And you're like, yeah, sure, why not? It doesn't matter that you already had some water in there. They're, they're going to keep you filled up. You had water, now you have more of it. And, and we take an experience like that, and we think, okay, so I, I already have the Holy Spirit in my glass, in my life, since I've accepted Jesus as my Savior and King. Therefore, to be filled with the Spirit must mean that I just get more of the Spirit, that, that, that it just, I get more of Him in my glass. And in this framework, the Holy Spirit becomes something that, that gets injected into our lives for special occasions or, or for times of great need. Like, sometimes we, we treat being filled with the Spirit uh, like drinking coffee or, or an energy drink. 
Now, I'm told that all of you coffee drinkers don't need coffee, uh, but from my experience, if you want to like boost your performance or if you want to work or study at peak levels, you all are reaching for that cuff because you need to inject some caffeine in your life to get it done. Uh, likewise, we can see some looming conflict or maybe a, a ministry opportunity, and, and we think to ourselves, if I really want to knock it out of the park, I, I need to be filled with the Spirit. I need to get topped off. I need, I need that boost in my performance. Other times, we treat being filled with the Spirit kind of like taking ibuprofen, and I would like to take this moment in the sermon to just give a shout out to all the youth of Providence who helped me stay fit and active. It is, uh, it's because of you that I am able to eat as poorly as I do, so thank you. Um, but I'll be honest, there are times that I go home from youth group and I'm feeling my age a little bit. I'm, I'm sore. And so what do I do? Take ibuprofen. Why? Well, because it will interrupt the discomfort I'm feeling. See, sometimes... Sometimes we experience discomfort in our lives, don't we? Our quiet times are a bit stale. We've fallen back into a sin that we thought we had graduated from. Uh, or, or it's just a bit stressful in the office or at home. And to get over that discomfort, we think we just need an injection of the Spirit. Just need a little extra comfort and peace to cope with the pain. See, we think that being filled with the Spirit means receiving a little extra of Him whenever we need it, whenever it serves our purposes, whenever it helps us or advances our agenda. In our minds, being filled with the Spirit is not unlike having a genie in a bottle with unlimited wishes. He's just ready to help and serve whenever we ask. But being filled with the Spirit does not mean that you gain more of Him to use as you please. It means that you give more of yourself to him. Let me say that again. To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean that you get more of the Holy Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit gets more of you. That when we are instructed to be filled with the Spirit, we are really being instructed to surrender our lives, our wills, our desires, and our agendas to the Holy Spirit to do with us what he pleases. And what he pleases is not a mystery. Scripture is quite clear that what the Holy Spirit intends to do with us. See, Jesus laid that out in John 16, verses 13 and 14. He said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. Yes, the Holy Spirit comforts, matures, and intercedes for the believer, but his primary objective is to magnify Jesus and bear witness to him. And when we're instructed to be filled with the Spirit, we're being called to surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit to accomplish that end. And if we're honest, that's, that really doesn't sound that great to us. See, the reality is Jesus is far more eager to fill us with the Holy Spirit than you and I are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Why the hesitation? Why do you and I struggle to surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit? And there are several reasons we could list, but let me just mention three of them quickly. Uh, one reason we hesitate to be filled with the Spirit, to surrender ourselves to Him, is pride. After all, we're Americans. We are self-made people. 
we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Any, any growth or accomplishment that we've experienced in our lives is built upon our, our discipline and our effort. And, and I, think, I think we could be particularly susceptible to this because of our context. There are a lot of smart, successful people that make up the membership of Providence Church. And it can be very easy for us, much like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, to survey our lives and think to ourselves, is not all of this what I have built by my mighty power? In other words, one of our problems with being filled with the Spirit is that we don't think we really need Him. We seem to be doing just fine on our own. Another reason we don't surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit is fear. And I think the cliche example of this is what happens at every Bible college during missions week. You have a bunch of college students worrying that if, if they surrender their lives to Jesus, he's going to make them be missionaries in Africa. Now, statistically speaking, few, if any of you, will be called to be a missionary in Africa. But what other unpleasant things might God call you to do if you surrender to him? Perhaps he might call you to be single. He might call you to serve in the children's ministry. Uh, he, he might rewrite your values in such a way that it affects your checkbook and your workplace trajectory. See, see we have a problem with being filled with the Spirit because it sounds rather frightening. Let me give you one more. Residing or hidden sin. See, there are certain sins that you love. There are certain sins that I love. And the reason we love these certain sins is because they function kind of like a feeding tube. It pumps in a tainted nutrient to us. It provides comfort or pleasure or approval or power or security. And so we're really more interested in mitigating the negative side effects of that sin than actually removing it. And we know that if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our lives, if we surrender ourselves to him, he's coming for that. He's going to uproot that sin from our lives. And so we, uh, we keep certain parts of ourselves away from him. And I'm sure there are more reasons that we could come up with, but, but what I want us to see is that the core of each of these three things, and the core of every example I think we could come up with, is this. The problem is a loss of control. The root issue, the main reason you and I don't want to be filled with the Holy Spirit is because we don't want to lose control of our lives. And there's a very simple reason for that. Uh, a reason a friend of mine very vividly helped me experience. Uh, me and a friend who was about 20 at the time, uh, we were picking up Chipotle for lunch and we were going back to my house. Now the drive from the Chipotle in Avon to my house in Avon Lake is about 10 minutes. No big deal, right? Wrong. This was, and I kid you not, one of the most terrifying drives of my life. He, he took the corner, uh, corners fast. He would break at the last second. His music was blaring. And for some reason, he was insistent on trying to make eye contact with me as he's driving. And so I'm over here in the passenger seat. I have, I have braced myself. I'm pumping some imaginary brake. And I'm just praying that I get home to my kids and my wife. I did. Um, and I'm exaggerating just the tiniest little bit to try and make a point. Why was a drive that I have made hundreds of times so terrifying? Well, it wasn't just because I wasn't in control. I had made that drive with other people and been fine. The reason 
is because I wasn't in control and I wasn't sure he was as concerned for my well-being as I was. See, that's the real reason that we like to remain in control, because we trust ourselves. We are utterly convinced that we want what's best for us, and we aren't sure that other people, including the Holy Spirit, actually want what's best for us. See, we don't want Jesus to take the wheel. We want him to sit in the back to give some navigational suggestions and maybe throw out a song choice or two. But that's not how God operates. See, there are places like Romans 12, 1, that command us to offer ourselves completely to God as a living sacrifice. See, if you are a follower of Jesus, surrendering to the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not optional for you. It is commanded. And so we have a real problem before us. The, the prescription is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the problem is that we, we have absolutely no desire to do so, which means that God has to make provision for us to be filled with the Spirit. And, and, and I, I don't want to undersell how big of an issue this is. See, see, our desire for control is not a new problem, nor is it a surface issue. Our desire for control goes to the very core of our being from, from basically the beginning. When, when Adam, or when God created Adam and Eve, he, he gave them a command, yes, but that command was also an invitation. He was inviting them to entrust themselves to God and his goodness, to surrender control to the one who created them and provides for them. But of course, they were not willing, desiring to be in control of their lives. They took of the fruit and they rebelled. And all mankind, including you and me, we have carried on that legacy of rebellion, of grasping for, for control of our lives. And Jesus actually tells us where this legacy of rebellion, this desire for control, ends. In Matthew uh, 21, starting in verse 33, he, he tells a story of an individual who leases out some property to these tenants. And when it's time to pay what the owner is due, he sends his servants to collect. But the tenants, they, they kill the servants. And so the owner sends more servants, and they kill the servants. And this repeats and repeats until finally he decides, well, I will send my son, for surely they will respect him. But what do the tenants do? Well, they see the son, and they think, that's the owner's son. If the son was out of the picture, then we'll have control of the property. And so they kill the son. And Jesus, in verse 40, asks the crowd, what will the owner do? What will the owner do when he hears what the tenants have done? He will put those wretches to a miserable death. He will pour out all of his just fury on these rebels. Friends, don't you see that Jesus was telling our story? <laughs> that again and again the Father invites us to relinquish control, to trust his goodness towards us, and again and again we are unwilling until finally he sends his Son. And Peter in his Pentecost address in verse 42 tells us how that went. That Jesus of Nazareth, a man who demonstrated nothing but kindness and goodness, who was God among us, you killed him. That in an attempt to hold on to our control, we killed him. And as a result, God 
pours out his spirit on all flesh. God pours out his spirit on all flesh. Friends, that is not how the story is supposed to end. The story is supposed to end with God pouring out his wrath on the rebellious wretches who murdered his son. It's supposed to end with us being put to a miserable death. Why then does God pour out his spirit rather than his wrath? And that is a question that Peter answers for us elsewhere. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter recounts Jesus standing trial, and he explains that he did not revile, he did not threaten. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. Though, though he had 12 legions of angels at the ready, he surrenders control to God. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. Verse 24 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that, that he himself bore the full measure of our rebellion. As he hung on the cross, all of God's righteous wrath was poured out on him. Jesus suffered a miserable death, deserving for only a wretch like me. And he did so so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That, that somehow his death on our behalf, the wounds that he bears, they heal us of our need for control. See, before Jesus, we were like sheep that would just run whichever way seemed best to us. But when we see Jesus on the tree, on our behalf, it breaks us of our suspicion of him. It proves that Jesus actually cares more about you and your well-being than even you do. And it allows us to return, to surrender ourselves to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. See, friends, we, we cannot present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12, 1 commands, without first beholding the mercies of God. See, in Jesus, God has given us every assurance that if we relinquish control, if we surrender ourselves to him, he will, in fact, care for us. And with that provision, and only with that provision, are we able to be filled with the Spirit. Very practically now, how do we do that? How, how do we become filled with the Spirit? How do we surrender ourselves, body and soul, to the God who loves us and gave himself for us? Well, Luke doesn't answer that question for us in our text, but Ephesians 5 does. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that last clause could, could be translated a, a bit better. It would be better to say, be filled continually by the Spirit. Keep being filled by the Spirit. In other words, we don't just surrender once and you're good to go. Surrendering is a day-to-day, -day, sometimes moment-by-moment -moment endeavor. And, and so, so how do we surrender ourselves to the Spirit? How are we filled with the Spirit? Well, we, we ask and keep asking Him to be in control. 
We ask and keep asking that he would use us to advance the kingdom and, and witness of Jesus. We ask and keep asking that not my will be done, but yours. And this is a request that I am 100% confident that God will grant. Well, Caleb, you might be thinking that that seems rather simple. How, how do we know if we're truly, if we truly surrender ourselves, how do we know if we're filled with the Spirit? Well, we typically stop at verse 18. But did you know in the Greek, verses 18 through 21 is one long run-on sentence? In other words, it all goes together. Verse 18 is the command, 19 through 21, the proof that the command has taken root in the individual's life. So let me highlight three indicators of a spirit-filled life quickly, and then you can unpack that in your small groups. Um, first, Paul says that, that if you're filled with the Spirit, it will affect your speech. It will affect not just the way you pray and talk to God. It will also uh, affect the way that you speak to one another. Second, it will affect your praise you'll be marked with gladness and thanksgiving because you are convinced that the one you've surrendered yourself to has nothing but good for you despite what might be happening in your life. And finally, it, it will affect your relationships with others. Not, not just the way you speak to one another, but your service and care for others because you have experienced his service and care for you. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot more I'd love to say, but we're, we're out of time. So, so let me just land the plane here. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and King, you have received power to be his witness in Avon, in Lorain County, the, the west side of Cleveland, to the ends of the world for that matter. May we be a church who would dare to tap into that power. May we be a church who would dare to ask that we be filled with the Spirit. May we in boldness say, I surrender all. That we surrender all. All for thee, our blessed Savior. We surrender all. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have provided everything we need to live as you have called us to. Father, we thank you that in your kindness you have poured out your spirit upon us that we might live a life that is pleasing to you, that glorifies you, and bears witness to your Son. Father, we confess, I confess, that, that we are hesitant to surrender ourselves to you and to that power. Father, would you forgive us of our mistrust of you? Would you forgive us of our, our desire to be safe? And Father, would you, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see that even though it might not seem that you are safe, you are in fact good, that you love us, and we know this to be true because of your Son. And so, Father, would you impress this reality upon our hearts? Would you give us such a view of Jesus that we would surrender ourselves to you? And may you use us, Father, to change the world, to bear witness to your Son. Even now, Father, as we sing your praises, would you impress your love upon us and bring glory to your name? We ask this in the name of Jesus.